0: Hello, everyone. We are back with a new episode of Made You Think for the first time in a while. Thank you all for being patient. If this is your first episode, then disregard anything about having to wait. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Like I mentioned in the update episode a bit over a week ago, we are doing things a little bit differently for now. So this is Nat, and I've been here for all the past episodes. We have a new guest with us today.
1: This is Monsel.
0: Monsal, what's the last name? Denton. Denton. And don't look that up. <laughs> we, we might come back to that later. But I invited Monsal to join for the episode today because the book we're discussing is Food of the Gods by Terence McKenna, uh, which covers humanity's relationship with psychedelics and plant medicine throughout history. And of pretty much everyone I know, Monsell knows the most about this area and actually works in this area in sort of an indirect way right now. So we're excited to talk about
1: the book today. I'm very excited. Anything psychedelics related, whether it's talking about them or doing them, is great.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of uh, user stories from both of us, I think, as the episode goes on. But before we dig in, Manso, you want to just give everyone a little background on you and what you're up to?
1: Sure, yeah. So uh, I have recently left an organization called Neutropedia, where my whole focus was helping people to optimize their mental performance using nootropics. I found that some of the best nootropics were psychedelics and From that path, I've kind of moved into another organization called Oyasin, which is a lifestyle brand around reharmonizing people to the natural world. And so to give you a very high level view of what I'm interested right now, uh, I believe that all of the external problems in the world are a manifestation of what's going on in our minds collectively as a society. And so the way to solve what's going on in our minds well there are many but psychedelics can be a powerful tool and that's one of the reasons why i'm so compelled by them right now
0: i should mention too that monsel actually took me on my first hunt sort of through oyasin as you were testing out that model right and you're actually going to be doing more of those
1: yeah yeah like I, I mentioned, I think the transformational experiences, these peak experiences are things that we all kind of crave and they help to change our perspective in some way. And hunting, for me anyway, has been a transformative experience. Uh, and I uh, hope as well for you and anyone yeah. else who comes to, on the trips.
0: No, I, I would recommend, I mean, even if you don't do it with Oyasin or with Monsel, if you have an opportunity to do kind of a, an introductory guided hunt, it's a very cool experience. Uh, I'm very glad that I did it and you had a really great operation for that. So that was fun.
1: Well, I'm glad you liked it. And yeah, I want as many people as possible to go on the hunt. So uh, I will be having an entire like ethical hunting series coming up, which is just basically emails for people, how to get started. Doesn't have to be through my hunts, but if people want to start on their own, because I know a lot of people, especially people listening to this probably are in cities, have no idea where to start and so I created a a whole kind of outline for people to figure that out and go do it themselves if they want.
0: Sweet. Well, when you have that ready, send it to me, and we'll I'll put it in the medley. Or it's not going to be ready like next week, right? No. no. Okay. <laughs> That's
1: why I didn't have any URL on the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, when it, when it's ready, I'll, I'll put it in my newsletter. But uh, yes. So obviously today we're talking about food of the gods. We're not talking about hunting. Maybe we'll do that another episode in the future. But it's an interesting time, I think, to. talking about this because it does feel in the last year like a threshold has been crossed in the public mind around psychedelics and plant medicines. I think Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, probably had one of the biggest influences in that societal shift, plus all of the research that we're seeing coming out now supporting things like psilocybin you know magic mushrooms or even mdma for uh ptsd and other psychiatric therapies all right does it does it feel the same to you like we're kind of in this transitional mode right now where people are suddenly more okay with it
1: yeah about it i do think it's becoming way more mainstream and acceptable and it's hard to judge what the reality is because I've been in this world for a while. I tend to put myself around other like-minded, open pe- open-minded open people. So, you know, what that actually looks like on the, you know, the rest of society, I don't know. But I do think, especially with people like Michael Pollins, you know, he's a, a source of integrity for a lot of people and people who... Have read his other books, have a a lot of respect for him. So I think that's a really big shift in the right direction. And yeah, like you said, people who are only focusing on the science are going to be interested in a lot of these studies.
0: And I think Denver, I want to say, is even looking at legalizing suicide. Or Portland? Okay.
1: Portland, yeah. If they do that, that's going to be so amazing for tourism. It will. I'd be curious to see what happens with that. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about the psychedelics specifically mm-hmm. that is so compelling given where we are in the current political climate is that it's very hard uh, for people to argue on either side of the aisle with some of the things that are coming out with it within the space of psychedelics yeah. because you know, conservatives love the military and how are you going to justify denying someone with PTSD who served for our country something that can help them. And if psychedelics are the one thing that we can all agree on, then I'm I'm a happy person.
0: (laughs) I think there's a lot of people too who could use a heavy dose of psychedelics to stop, you know, like being angry, shitty people too. (laughs) I don't know if that's a, a legitimate prescription we can give, but it does feel sometimes like i don't i don't know being wrapped up in the news cycle or in the outrage cycle right there and we're going to talk about this more in the book but there is something to the stepping outside of yourself and kind of even of reality that comes with these types of experiences that i think is getting even more useful in a culture that's becoming even more obsessed with the day to day and itself and you know, this other kind of imaginary world, just everything in our, everything in the internet, right? Like that realm of reality doesn't really exist in any physical way. Neither does the like reality you can explore within your head. And it's kind of like recreating that relationship with the internal map, I think is something that pretty much everyone can benefit from. And it's probably what we're seeing with meditation and its rise in popularity as well right? There's like a recognition of something lost. Uh, And I think that's sort of what Terrence McKenna is starting or trying to explore in this book.
1: Yeah. I think if you look at what we value as a society, uh, it's achievement, success, et cetera, that often lends itself to use of stimulants. Mm -hmm. And so, and there's a feedback loop that rewards that. Whereas It takes a type of person and it takes a lot of momentum, I think, to get a person to psychedelics. So I could introduce Mr. Trump to some psychedelic, but he might not be open to it in the same way that he might be to coffee, for example. Right. Right, I mean, it's it's, obviously those are very different things, but I think it's kind of what we value uh, that's starting to shift a little bit and we should
0: probably mention now that we've started to go down this rabbit hole a bit, uh, obviously the things we're talking about are illegal in most places and we're not obviously advocating law breaking uh, or, you know, doing anything risky. And there are of course inherent risks with these chemicals, you know, even if they do typically test as safe, especially compared to almost any other drug on the market, there are obviously always risks. Uh, There are, legal considerations so you know be smart uh those guys on the podcast said i should do it does not hold up in court so we cannot save you (laughs) but uh you know we do want to talk about this and talk about it honestly and bring our experiences into it too and you know i think that it is something that uh by talking about it on air like this we actually can you know help push the discussion forward towards more acceptance in a way from the old uh kind of like scared ideas that developed around these substances in the last, not like that long, like maybe 40, 50 years. Right. It felt like everything got really positive in the sixties ish and then super negative. And now people in like our parents' generation have, I think fairly negative stereotypes around a lot of these plant medicines. Right. But that's like a unique thing within history. For most of history, it's been a fairly positive association, although maybe less so post agriculture. Right.
1: Yeah, I would say the kind of war on drugs, and you know Nixon claiming that Timothy Leary was the most dangerous, most dangerous man, man in the world. world. Yeah. Those kinds of that hyperbole has kind of done it an injustice. Psychedelics, uh, but I'm I'm pretty optimistic about things given that you know people who are doing drugs in the in the 70s the hippie generation is starting to take over and i i can't imagine there are not politicians who have you know done some of these things and maybe yeah. increasingly will be a greater and greater number of them so I, I don't think it's going away any away by any stretch
0: yeah well and you you said something interesting before about you know what kinds of drugs people are comfortable taking and which ones they aren't and it's easy to forget that a lot of things that are normal in our day-to-day are drugs too, right? Coffee is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. Tobacco is a drug. Aspirin is a drug, right? It's a very imprecise word that we're using, but all of us use substances to alter our daily experience in different ways, right? Like that's been unchanged. It's just the opinions we have about the different substances that seems to like flux back and forth. Uh, and it's funny, I, hadn't, I didn't really know about this that much before reading the book, but there are actually benefits to, well, I guess I didn't know this because of microdosing, but there are benefits to taking sub doses of even some of the harder psychedelics like DMT and psilocybin. Uh, and that was actually a big part of hunter gatherer culture for a while, right? Like it was actually like a hunting stimulant
1: yeah, there's a lot of research. I mean, it even still to this day is used. They will give ayahuasca admixtures to dogs for more effective hunting. Really? Yeah, so the- <laughs> today in the jungle. Uh, and but it's got to be a
0: super... Is it a low dose or are the dogs like...
1: Tripping? It's low enough that they're still doing what they need to be doing and they're not rolling around like the jaguars who will just full-on trip.
0: Yeah, they they like go all all in right they've got something in their stomach where they can process the raw plants where we can't is that right
1: probably probably the reverse so oh, they, the reverse. Okay. we have uh an enzyme that breaks down the dmt and it's an you know uh, monoamine oxidase okay and so we have we need an inhibitor so that that enzyme goes away so that the dmt is active for us and my supposition is that the jaguars probably just don't have that enzyme or they've got it functioning in a different way
0: got it is that why you usually need to smoke dmt if you're getting it if you're getting pure dmt or then like with ayahuasca it needs to be in the special drink right are those both ways to get around that digestive inhibitor breaking it down
1: smoking the dmt doesn't get around that it just overloads the enzyme's ability to break it down. Wow, That's why the trip is so short. So you get like a 15 to 20 minute trip. Yeah. Whereas ayahuasca is with an admixture that suppresses the enzyme and allows the DMT to be active for longer. And you get, you know, these longer trips.
0: Got it. So what are they mixing it with to make ayahuasca? Do you know?
1: Well, the primary admixture is chacruna leaves. Okay. Uh, chacruna leaves are relatively common with the ayahuasca vine. And that is, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit, but oh, that's, that's great. NNDMT, the most common. Okay. And then there's another plant, I forget what the other plant is, that can be used where it actually creates 5-MeO-DMT in the ayahuasca. Much more rare to find that, but it's sometimes happens. Got it.
0: But these are like these mixtures, they're just sort of with plants, right? That's why you've got people who are basically living pre-modernity in the jungle that know how to do this. So it's something that we've known how to do for a very long time.
1: Yes. There is very clear archaeological ev- evidence that people were making ayahuasca thousands of years ago, up to two to 3,000 BC. So they knew how to do it long before, quote unquote, civilization was around and... Uh, They obviously learned a lot about living in their environment through it.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because uh, McKenna, in one of these first chapters, he leads with this hypothesis that these hallucinogenic compounds may have actually had an influence in our ability to self-reflect, right? That it's possible that through these you know, through having, through ingesting these compounds and having these experiences that actually might've been the catalyst for developing our own self-reflective abilities, because there is something, you know, about taking a high dose of one of these psychedelics where it is an intensely self-reflective experience. You know, I, I didn't feel this as much on DMT because like you said, it was like so short and fast and intense that it was kind of like immediate ego death. There was no Nat. There really couldn't, there really wasn't anything to bring back, but with, uh, LSD, it definitely felt that way where there really, it's, it's a lot more of just like you exploring yourself in a very unique way that at least I had never really gotten from any other experience in my life. And, that's kind of a interesting hypothesis that this could have been, you know, how we first started to think about ourselves and the other and kind of have that second layer of self-reference that makes human cognition unique to other animals.
1: Yeah, there's obviously many things that came to play at the same time. I like how you use the word hypothesis as opposed to what's commonly considered, uh, you know, within the purview of the stoned ape theory, mm. but yeah, I, I at least for myself, I can see how that would be a possibility, and I just I do really appreciate these what if scenarios. And even Terrence McKenna, if you listen to any of his lectures, was pretty clear. He was coming up with what if scenarios. He didn't have testable way, you know, he didn't have ways to test his hypothesis. He had some pretty interesting research. We can't know at least we don't know right now, uh, but. I'm not closed off to the idea that some of these things, like specifically, like you mentioned, being able to look outside of ourselves were possible.
0: Well, he, he's quite a bit more measured than his brother was right. Dennis McKenna was kind of a lot stronger (laughs) in all of these assertions, right? Is it reverse? Yeah.
1: So Dennis is, is the one who's alive. Who's the, Oh, okay. I've got him mixed up. Terrence is the, the one who, who passed away, who, yeah, you're right, and and but Dennis does even joke about you know some of the things that Terrence says. He's just kind of like, mm, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know where he got that.
0: Well, it's better than uh, who was it? The Harvard researcher who ended up running away into the woods was that Timothy Leary?
1: Leary, and then I forget what his Albert Ramdas, I believe. No, uh, that's that's, uh, that's Hoffman's guy. discovered Albert it. Hoffman is the one who discovered LSD, yeah. and uh, he actually synthesized psilocybin as well before oh, cool. that. But, but yeah, th- there was another who worked with Larry Ram Das. Okay. Th- th- that's who Ram Dass is now. He, yeah. I mean, I don't remember what his, his, his real name is, but yeah, th- they ran away for multiple, <laughs> multiple reasons, I would say.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. There was probably some other legal considerations, uh, but building off of that, that kind of stoned ape theory, I mean, what do you think about this idea that the brain is primarily a filtering tool? Right, I think this is something Huxley talked about in *The Doors of Perception*. Right, that the the function of the brain might not be to understand our environment, but to filter out all of the less important noise and thoughts. And like consciousness is largely a subtractive process, not an additive. And so there is some argument that what these substances are doing are just kind of like lowering the floodgates of your experience to open your senses to everything that is going on in your environment that you're normally unaware of. And I think there is some element of, you know, you might be walking and then you stop and there's a tree and the tree is just so beautiful, right? And you've never had this experience looking at a tree before. And if we felt that way about every tree we walked by, we would be dead very quickly, right? It'd be hard to function. And so it, it is kind of compelling, but, you know, how do you think about that? Do you think about it as like, these are doing something right back there that's kind of like changing your perception or is it this element of like just sort of opening your eyes and mind to what's already there
1: well i think it's probably a bit of both i do really appreciate that perspective of lowering lowering kind of the, the floodgates and and having a lot more stimuli come in i do i i mean that's just true there's things that come in uh, when you're doing any kind of psychedelic that, just like you mentioned, the tree's a cl- classic example. But even in, in sober life, you can look at examples of, you know, some specific book that you've never heard of and then within a week, you hear about it like three times. Mm-hmm. There's some part of your brain that is now receptive to that specific thing and it's just picking it up more. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer that there's some component of that but then i think there's also some component of you know projecting things onto the environment so there are certain aspects of your psyche etc that become physical realities in the external world Mm -hmm. on something like a you know large dose of, of psychedelics that make it you know kind of it's kind of a it's a process with the environment that's kind of going back and forth it's almost like a it's providing some things to you uh, in a stimuli sense and you're providing some projections into the environment in a way. Uh but it also reminds me of some really interesting research around the you know the part of the brain that is specifically designated to like truth making and like finding logic and truth in certain aspects mm-hmm. of life are actually developed more with the intention of how can i create truth that i can describe to others so that they believe me not necessarily objective truth so even our truth seeking mechanisms in our brain are more inclined towards truth that serves me in a social setting right which humans are incredibly social animals as opposed to actual objective truth so even in mentally conceptualizing what I'm talking right now, I feel like I'm on psychedelics. <laughs>
0: well, so then I guess to what you're saying, it's like our brain might not be accurately interpreting reality. It's interpreting reality in the most useful way socially. Yes.
1: Right, yeah. That's that's part of it. And right. then part of it, I think, is also just like you said, there's a, an element of stimuli that's being recorded and acknowledged that wouldn't be in your normal waking consciousness
0: yeah well it's it's kind of interesting too because that might explain some of why animals seem interested in psychedelics at least right because that's always been a question to me where for us it's attractive in the self-reflective way right and it's useful in the self-reflective way but as far as we know animals don't really have a capacity for self-reflection right so why would a jaguar want to you know trip balls on dmt like have you ever thought about what might be attractive there to the animals or is there is this is just like a biological urge we all have to change our state
1: there was actually some pretty compelling research on the topic one it, yeah just like you said there's some element of completely pressing reset on our consciousness mm-hmm. that almost every species can benefit from so it's actually an evolutionary disadvantage for an animal to be tripping, you know, right. very open for predators to kill them at that time. But what happens is like all animals have habitual patterns and sometimes these patterns are helpful and sometimes they're not. And this, what the science showed was that having these pattern interrupts allowed for animals to change habits that proved more evolutionarily advantageous.
0: Hmm. Interesting, so it's almost like cleaning house on your internal processes a little bit and then letting the effective ones come back and keeping out some of the bad ones. Yeah. It kind of sounds like like cleaning out your computer, maybe, <laughs> would be an acceptable analogy. It does,
1: yeah, and reset is a, a term that's often used for computers, so I, th- I think the important caveat to that is animals know not to take that kind of stuff too frequently generally mm. speaking. And if you look at even the studies on addictiveness with animal models, rats, mice, etc., will take LSD and they don't go back to it. Yeah. You know, whereas cocaine they'll just keep going back to it right, because right. it's that's that's like a reward pathway whereas with a psychedelic it's quite a different effect.
0: Well, it's almost anti-addictive because not only do you not want to go right back there right away, but it also doesn't work as well
1: if you do it too frequently,
0: right? Like, isn't there something where if you try to take LSD two days in a row, it basically doesn't do anything?
1: It won't do anything. Yeah. And the higher the dose, the more tolerant you become. Longer you have to wait. So yeah. you could you could do micro doses, you know, under like even 0.2 grams, for example, of psilocybin. Oh, can, I was yeah.
0: going to say 0. 0.2 grams of LSD is <laughs>
1: <laughs> you could do like 0. 0.2 grams as kind of a micro dose and you could do those multiple days in a row and you might not necessarily have a, s- a subjective experience, but there's you know, neurogenesis benefits that are coming, etc. But if you do a big dose, you better wait till the next week. And honestly, if you do a big enough dose, uh, I-, I don't know why you're necessarily, why one would feel compelled to do it every week anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, what I usually hear is like the annual cleanse, right? Like that that seems to be a, I don't know to me that always seemed like a good minimum effective dose for like self-administered psychedelic therapy maybe quarterly too depending on the amount you're doing.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I fall more on the liberal, the liberal side. <laughs> the liberal side, but here's the distinction that yeah. I'll make. I think that it can be a, like psychedelics can be incredibly powerful tools uh, and then they could also be and don't take this the wrong way i don't necessarily advocate or even do them at i don't particularly like them being coupled together with like party drugs necessarily yeah. Yeah. but i do find a lot of value in spending time during the day with a the- group of five friends and just doing small doses throughout the day, finding that appreciation for the natural environment that I'm in on a more regular basis. So if you want to call that recreational use, sure, recreational use. Uh, I appreciate that maybe more frequently. The big doses, I think, have a ton of value. But I think where a lot of the value comes with these psychedelic compounds is the structure that's, that's placed around them Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why i'm such a big fan of doing like an ayahuasca ceremony or retreat where there are multiple ceremonies within a week and i found like those experiences if you want to do them annually i think that you know that's probably a good timeline for those kinds of like deep uh internal reflections those provide the major like catalysts those provide the Oh, my relationship's like unhealthy. I need to leave. Oh, this job is not what I want. I need to leave. So, very different. And of course, it's talked about with the whole set and setting component. So,
0: well, I like the distinction you made too is that when we're talking about doing psychedelics, we're not talking about dropping acid and going to a rave, right? It's much more of a you know, maybe you and one person helping facilitate the experience, or you're on a retreat, or you're with a small group of friends, or you're even alone, right? Like, I think there's a stigma, and McKenna talks about this in the book, too. There's a stigma against doing drugs alone, right, or doing substances alone, where that's, you know, a categorically bad or even sad thing. But I don't know. I mean, I've found a lot of value in doing psychedelics alone and just like being with yourself. Right. I think that that's, that can be a very useful experience as well. A scary one too at times, but like that's almost part of the value. Right. And that's, that's a very different relationship with a substance than like taking a bunch of Molly and going to an EDM concert. Right. We're talking much more about the respectful use in productive settings unless the kind of like party drug version
1: sure yeah i think when it comes to doing psychedelics on your own there's a very different and in some ways more valuable experience that can come from that because oftentimes if i'm with somebody the ideas kind of come from all over the place it's very hard to have like real coherent conversations when Mm -hmm. you're in the climax of a, of an experience like that. But what tends to happen is I'll go down kind of a rabbit hole of my own thoughts and then I'll be brought back to the surface by something that somebody else does or says Yeah. by myself. I can just go straight down. And so, you know, you can go straight down to negative place right? and you you can go straight down to some deep thing that you, feel compelled to you know explore on your own also i think that as much as i don't particularly have much interest in going to concert like a rave and doing lsd or something like that i don't see that as necessarily being a bad thing i want i i am a far bigger believer in people having the freedom to you know do whatever they want and enjoy however they want Most important thing for me would be to identify what's the intention Mm. is the intention to escape. And I think that probably manifests more in combining alcohol, LSD, et cetera, in a party environment, or is the, you know, intention to explore, reflect, connect. So I would say always look more to the intention necessarily than the external environment.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. The intention is a a big aspect of it. And it seems like that's part of or it's kind of like part of what has allowed certain drugs to like remain legal versus ones that haven't been. Because if you like you can escape from work with alcohol, right, in kind of a casual way that won't change your relationship with work. Or like you can get really drunk after work, right? But it's not going to necessarily change how you think about life and work and everything. But if people were doing like acid on the regular, <laughs> right? Or, LS, or DMT or whatever, uh, it would be, I think you'd have more of these experiences of like, oh, I don't like what I'm doing. It's harder to be locked into a monotonous routine that you hate if you're having these, psychedelic driven wakeups every few months and i feel like uh and, and mckenna mentioned this too that the drugs that are illegal and that we do consume you know coffee sugar tobacco alcohol uh they all fit into what he calls it's like dominator culture right this very uh capitalist profit and work driven environment where it's considered kind of unacceptable to just sit around and explore the planes of human thought uh, for better or worse. But it's kind of interesting to see like, or to think about, you know, how would our work and life and environment be changed if people did have access to these supplement or to these uh, not supplements, but to these substances and being able to explore that. And we're seeing it a little bit now with marijuana, I think becoming legalized we'll probably see that nationally legal in the next few years it feels like we're just like on the cusp of that uh and it hasn't you know unraveled society right (laughs) so it feels like that whole hypothesis has not been played out that these things are dangerous and they'll destroy our environment or they'll destroy like our successful society
1: sure i think that's again comes again back to the intention is like you could have somebody who can just sit around smoke weed all day and do nothing which is the stereotype that yeah anti-cannabis people often hold up and you can have somebody who utilizes it to be more creative or whatever uh, so yeah intentions such a such an important thing and and kind of like like you mentioned though with those class of drugs the uh he said dominator culture yeah
0: like dominator culture drugs
1: it's interesting that Stimulants obviously often fall in that category. Right. But even alcohol, like that's a depressant, falls in that category. You know, maybe you can do certain tasks better when you have alcohol, reduce anxiety or something. But generally speaking, that's such a fine line. People are far beyond that when they're using alcohol. Yeah. So what comes to mind for me is a lot of these drugs, compounds create some type of baseline that's manageable. Whether it's coffee, like I've got enough stimulation where things are manageable, okay, I'm good. Oh, yeah. Alcohol, all right, things are manageable. Nicotine, kind of same way. Um whereas like you said psychedelics are peak experiences mm-hmm. and it just blows through that di- you know monotony. Yeah. And I actually think that there's so much value in doing both. I think that having the peak experiences on a regular enough basis where you can find you know for lack of a better term like find your true north come into alignment with what it is you want to create or whatever and then use caffeine and nicotine and all these other compounds on a daily basis to quote unquote manifest it or do it (laughs) well nicotine is actually a funny one because
0: nicotine itself is not a very dangerous chemical it's fairly harmless. It seems to be just every way we have of getting it is uh, is not great for <laughs> us. It's like cigarettes, obviously, it's all the other shit in there, really, that's pretty bad for you. I mean, if you're smoking pure tobacco leaf infrequently, that's probably totally safe. Uh, how do you think about all of the like vaporizers, though? Like-
1: I don't particularly like vape at all i just don't like anything that has an administration method that involves smoking Mm. at all it's also a very uh intense administration method so when you when you vape or smoke something it's basically the same as sublingual like under your tongue Mm -hmm. as far as entering the mucous membranes but it's just far larger surface area on the lungs and so that's why you get the hit and it lasts less time and it's more intense and that's one reason why smoking uh, has such appeal because it's like a really intense amount of nicotine really quickly really quick Uh, and you gotta keep doing it right and one of the interesting things is Nicotine, as far as addictiveness is concerned, nicotine is only addictive when it's combined with an MAOI. And a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, tobacco, is an MAOI. And so you have nicotine with this MAOI, which makes it addictive huh. for humans. Nicotine by itself is not in scientific setting. And so if somebody were to utilize... Well, first of all, if someone were to just smoke loose leaf tobacco and, and, and enjoy it like they might enjoy a glass of wine or a cigar, then I think there's probably more psychological value in enjoying it. Yeah. But if you're looking to just, you know, utilize the chemical compound, nicotine is great. I've got a cab a cabinet full of nicotine gum and I just oh, break for the focus. Yeah. I'll break the gum into uh, quarters. So I take about 0.5 milligrams. Okay. Uh, of a two milligram piece of gum, and it's it works well, works long time versus huh. smoking or vaping, right, which is quick. Yeah,
0: but so, well then you've got all of these kids getting hooked on like Juul, right? Which is, or you know, with vaporizers, right? Which is the pure nicotine. There's no MAO high inhibitor there, as far as I know. Is there one in those cartridges that would be? allowing it to become addictive because it's clearly really addictive if people are getting hooked on these vapes right so do you have any idea where that's coming from then
1: i don't know where yeah. that would be coming from i don't even know of the addiction of of the vapes i um, mean like i said it's really quick administration method right. and it obviously does impact reward centers in the brain so i mean it could be behavioral too yeah yeah interesting is alcohol an MAOI inhibitor no no okay there's not I've a heard lot.
0: that term thrown around before. It's
1: mostly thrown around when it comes to ayahuasca. Is that what it is? It's about? also yeah. thrown around sometimes when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs, but primarily I'm going to make a judgment yeah. or, or reach out a little bit on a limb, but I think it's probably in the, in the context of ayahuasca where it becomes most applicable because you can take the ayahuasca vine by itself and experience nothing. You, oh, need okay. you need an MAOI inhibitor. Enter. Yeah. Huh. And some people, like, you know, Hamilton from Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, he'll do all kinds of crazy stuff. He, he's, he's, he does like Vice documentaries, oh, okay, little cool. mini documentaries on different psychedelics and stuff. And he'll use, you know, MAOI inhibitors that are like just chemical compounds. Like he just, he's like, I don't need the admixture from these plants. I'm just going to use the prescription drug alongside the ayahuasca.
0: <laughs> does that work? Yeah, it totally works. It's huh. kind of cool. It's like a good way to test the theory that that's what the vine is doing.
1: Sure, yeah. I think that's pretty, at this point, pretty clear. But I think you lose a lot when you remove it from the ceremonial or the historical context. I think you lose a lot more than people consider.
0: Well, I feel like that's true with so many natural things, right? Where if you, you know, it's like like Soylent, right? when you try to just reduce food to these few variables that we have a fairly shaky understanding of and then remanufacture food from the ground up, you're going to lose something in that process. And we don't know what it is, but we will find out at some point, right? Like the consequences of doing that.
1: Yeah, that seems to me almost to be a symptom, this is kind of a tangent, but kind of a symptom of how people seem to believe science and rationality is the new god yeah and we trust that with everything we've got and that seems soylent seems to be a silly symptom of that
0: yeah well there there is this weird thing where science is great right and science does discover a lot of things but it also is not complete and it also gets things wrong right and that doesn't mean that it's bad and we shouldn't trust it but it does mean that you should be like healthily skeptical, right? If, you know, some new drug comes out that cures this disease and says it has no side effects, right? It's like probably that we just haven't seen what the side effects are yet, right? It's like basically every action in the body is going to have some reaction, right? Like no drugs are really a free lunch. Uh, And it's just like, when you think that something is completely figured out in a, a closed case in science, it always seems like something else comes in. And so I don't know, the stuff like soil, it scares me because a lot of people drink it thinking it's healthy. And it's like, we don't really know what you're doing to yourself yet. Uh, and obviously we've seen that a lot with like the whole opiate epidemic, right? It was like, Oh, this will be a much better thing for, you know, relieving pain than giving you morphine or then, you know, whatever we had before, but it's like the biggest health crisis, that we've like maybe ever had aside from, you know, something like uh, polio, right? It's like the biggest manufactured health crisis ever. I think the, the stats now are that you're more likely to die of an opiate overdose than a car crash. It's like the number one source of accidental death now. And that's kind of another perfect example of what we're talking about here, where drugs that you can do while going to work are okay, but drugs where you would have to relax and like process Aren't okay, right? Like I feel like that's always been one of the pushbacks against marijuana is that it makes you just want to chill, right? It's not good if uh, everyone just wants to chill instead of work, right? Like that was part of the initial racism, you know, fueled distrust of marijuana, right? Like the marijuana branding. We talked about this a lot in our Smoke Signals episode. If you go back in the archives, but it, like we use the term marijuana now because it was a way to uh, associate using it with uh mexican laborers who would like get high and then not work and then there was like all this horrible propaganda against like mexicans and blacks getting high and attacking people it's just like it's so easy to build these like really bad reputations around these substances but there is that element of like yeah if if you can't work on it then society's not going to allow it
1: i also think and this is maybe the pessimist or even the conspiracy theorist in me but i think that at a structural level like power centers are going to be fundamentally okay with compounds that allow us to do more work or allow us to just kind of cope with whatever challenges we're having on a day-to-day basis and they're going to be less interested in us having completely radical radically shifted mindsets and perspectives on things and especially things like psychedelics where empathy is so heightened and you start to feel this sense of protection for the earth and I mean even Michael Pollan talks about how like the modern uh, environmental movement came predominantly out of psychedelic experiences Mm. in the 60s and 70s and it doesn't take much to see how that's actually the case in the 70s that's what was you know had the the most resistance from the administration Mm -hmm. so that is a little more of a sinister view but yeah i think that it's applicable
0: no i mean you can see it right like we're already kind of having those issues i think with young men not being able to find work and just sitting at home playing video games right like it's not completely crazy to imagine that if they had access to mind altering substances, that there'd be some inclination to sit around and do that instead of go out and get a job. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is hard to support yourself long term with, with that mentality. But I, I think that what we are seeing with the going back to the opiate stuff, it's like it can literally cure those addictions, right? And I think they've seen that get played out. Is it Ibogaine? Yeah. That's the one where it's like you give people one ibogaine you know but it's like a two-day experience right it lasts a while
1: yeah it's a very long experience as far as the psychoactive components concerned Mm -hmm. requires a decent amount of integration as well because it's very physically challenging okay and these kind of big doses of uh, iboga ibogaine definitely has a lot of power over like opiates and opiate addiction and stuff
0: it can like cure alcoholism in
1: yeah. basically one go. Right. right. That's and, what I've heard. And ayahuasca has similar effects, though generally less lauded uh, and perhaps less statistically significant mm-hmm. than Iboga. But that's Iboga is one of those things that you can't, it's suggested oftentimes and provided to people in very large mega doses. But you know, one out of three hundred people actually has a heart condition that's too weak to handle iboga oh, and they wow. die. So that's like one of the ones where you can die you can to take high doses. Huh. The thing is though, there's so many great applications of iboga on smaller scale, threshold scale, even microdosing scale. So smaller scale use of iboga can be really powerful even for addiction. Hmm in a safer way than you know something that might be overwhelming for the heart so i think you're going to start to see more clinics coming online or more education about using iboga in a more smaller dose
0: you don't hear about that one as much do you know what people have to do to do it because like you know ayahuasca i mean you can even do that in the u.s if you find a shaman right or you like go to peru right or you know most people if they go in the right direction they can find like LSD or mushrooms or something but like iboga doesn't seem like something you want to mess around with on your
1: own that's why yeah it's not something you want. To it's remember. not right it's very challenging it's like I would I haven't done iboga uh-huh. but I have done combo which is a frog toxin mm. and combo is not super popular and it's still legal in the U.S. because huh. it's just not that popular. It's not, it's not popular, popular enough to, to become a problem necessarily. Oh, that's one of the reasons. And I imagine Iboga is similar because it's just so physically rigorous. I mean, it will, from what I've heard, like just flatten you if you take big doses in hmm. a physical sense, not just like, oh, this is mentally challenging and emotionally challenging. It's like physically, like really hard. It's really aggressive purging, right? Is that part of it?
0: That's part of it. Yeah. yeah. And so- I've
1: had some aggressive purging with my last <laughs> too. But- uh, Red Vine. Yeah. Uh. I, I don't even want to know. The of that.
0: <laughs> do you know where people do the iboga? Though is it like therapy centers? There's clinics. Yeah. There are clinics. That offer There's it? clinics. Yeah.
1: There's clinics that I know of for sure in Mexico. Okay. A uh, buddy of mine, Doctor Dan Engel. He's the. I think he's a medical director of Onnit. He's got a lot of connections with clinics. I think they have some clinics in Arizona. Have huh. some in Mexico. Um, and he's working on some other projects as well to bring that into the forefront a little bit more because it's obviously it works. And I think there's some methodologies around using smaller doses that are becoming popular. Got it.
0: That's cool. Changing gears a little bit. What do you think of this idea that McKenna has in here that, well, these are two ideas. One, that because mushrooms basically grow best or need to grow in cow dung, that that might be why we see a certain like respect and even religious uh adoration towards cows in some eastern religions have you heard that theory before
1: yeah i did uh from him he's the only proponent that i know of it and again it's it's really interesting to consider yeah. i think there's something rattling around in my subconscious of that i read that suggested that kind of religious adoration of an animal has more to do with the geography and the evolutionary need to preserve those animals. Mm. So in India, for example, they might have really needed to have access to the milk from cows to meet some de- you know caloric demand, and that created a cultural imperative to enshrine a cow for religious purposes. I probably believe the evolutionary argument more than the argument about the psilocybin. Yeah. But that doesn't preclude that from still being influential. I mean, if you look at Christian text, you look at a lot of religious texts, a lot of cultural texts, and there are so many similarities, plausible stories of psychedelics being involved. Yeah. You know, even like burning bush there's you know some people consider jesus's resurrection to be a psychedelic trip oh Um, so he was he went away he did some type of i forget what exactly the psychedelic of the time and region was and then came out you know days later after going into that like deep you know psychological place even the myth of like santa claus is said by some to be something around you know the 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 red and the white of santa is applicable to the mushroom oh emerita mascara okay yeah yeah you'll have to look up especially the pronunciation of it but the the, the colors the red and white colors mm-hmm. and then the coming in the chimney was like when they would come through igloos in like northern climates in europe to provide like mushroom trips during, huh. during the winter. So there's a lot of stories like that. Which yeah. I butchered that one, but you can, look, <laughs> you can look up a ton of these different, you know, well, what if scenarios? And you know, I have no idea, but psychedelics are so mind altering, right? I cannot imagine a better substance to help humans write down the myths that we feel are important for living life well over the generations.
0: Well, and there is something too, I think the idea, and and McKenna mentions it in here, that psychedelics are the originators of religion, right? That much of what we have as religions today most likely started as kind of like tribal naturalist beliefs that emerged and morphed over time. Uh, Obviously, like the Abrahamic religions are a big shift from everything before them. But even in those, you still see some of the roots, I think, in uh, what would have been kind of like just very personal experiences with these psychedelics. And I think in doing them, you experience many of the same feelings and sense of connection and even visual experiences of some of what you might see in a religious text, right? I know I definitely felt that on DMT where it was very like, kind of like you're, I I don't know how to describe it exactly, but like not talking to God, but in communication with a being that is not of this world. Right. And I can see how, especially without our modern science, it would be easy to have those experiences and come back from them and say, like, all right, there is something else out there or out, or in here, or like somewhere, right? I don't know. All around us. All around us. Uh, McKenna's actually got a great line in the last chapter of the book where he says, uh, God is not an idea. God is a lost continent in the human mind. And I think there there is a lot to that. There's something about those experiences that does give you a connection with a lot of different religions, even if you're not particularly religious yourself.
1: Sure, absolutely. I think, you know, if you look at actually... Studies from the Harvard Divinity School and some of the research that was comparing mystical experiences, people who were in the divinity school studying religious studies, psychedelics could reliably create mystical experiences, mm. could reliably create these kinds of experiences of connecting to some type of higher power. I know that for myself, you know, I've got two parents that have. PhDs. I was raised in a very rational, scientific first upbringing. And it wasn't until a really deep ayahuasca session where I actually felt like asking God for something and and asking for his help and guidance, his, her, whatever it's. And since then have had some type of spiritual relationship with a higher power. Uh, And it was a result of the psychedelics for sure. And, you know, many of the, going back to the religions coming from, you know, relationships with psychedelics, mm-hmm. it's really quite interesting when you look at human society and civilization and how agriculture has moved us away from the kind of roots that we evolved in and how Abrahamic religions came, generally speaking, after agriculture and how many of the religions in you know the americas for example the aztecs uh they didn't always use psilocybin in the best way i mean they had ritual sacrifices human sacrifice on psilocybin but they considered psilocybin mushrooms literally the term in nahuatl their language is flesh of the gods Hmm. so they had a very strong connection with between psychedelics and their own religion just in the terminology nomenclature yeah.
0: no it's like well it's kind of interesting that you mentioned your experience with it too i mean coming back from that how do you maybe this is a weird question but when you think about it for yourself what do you feel like you have a relationship with because you use the term higher power but is that something external is that nature is it you know something within your
1: mind or is it just something ephemeral that can't really describe it's ephemeral i think if i had to describe it the the most applicable three words is i don't know i would say it's so much of what i grew up with Mm -hmm. in this ephemeral way of looking at it so it could be physics and like quantum physics and all kinds of like really hard science based you know philosophies yeah and that is god like these are the universal laws that make the ball go straight to the ground it's we call it gravity that's part of god whatever you know there's so many aspects of i think my own psyche that just have had this ephemeral higher power added to it Mm -hmm. so like all my beliefs on like i said science and evolution and things like that that kind of create its own type of definition. Yeah. And for me that that's one of the reasons why I know spirituality gets thrown around all over the place as a term, but one of the reasons I like spirituality is because it's very personal to me. I'll never try and convince you of my god. Right. And I would never want you to feel compelled to create anything but your own relationship to a higher power. Uh, so I find it's, it's a very, it's a very personal thing. And sometimes I can't really even explain it. I can just feel it. And that's actually one of the most interesting things about doing these really deep multi experience retreats is I feel like I have far more tools to access a part of that state in my normal conscious wake, like Mm. waking consciousness. Whether that's just certain breathing techniques or just even a sauna and, or even fasting, like all these different things put me in a mindset that's close enough to going way the hell out there. Yeah. That there's ways that I can actually connect to that higher power without the need for any kind of compounds now. Do you meditate? Normally? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you get it from that as well? or No, not really. No. When I do Kundalini yoga, I get it when I do.
0: What is Kundalini yoga?
1: Kundalini yoga is a type of yoga that's less about asanas, like movements uh, and poses. Sometimes you'll have like repetitive words. You'll just say like "hud, hud, hud, hud," and you'll say that for like fifteen minutes. Huh? It's pretty trippy. Like you get to places where you're like, you start hearing things, you start saying things that is not "hud." Like you, it, it really creates weird. weird um interesting kind of psych psychological um phenomena and then you'll do movements like repetitive movements so same thing you can do like the same movements 20 minutes in a row just mm-hmm. like your arms up and down up and down and i have had i think i'm probably i've gone beyond most people with kundalini yeah in the sense that i've blacked out in one kundalini Really? Like Practice. you just fainted? I just, or? yeah, I just fainted. Jeez. I, I was standing up and I just came up and, and I was like doing the exercise very vigorously and I was like holding my breath at the top and it just black out. And the <laughs> next thing I remember, I'm like on the ground and everyone's around me. And like, Jeez. Are you okay? But that split second of me blacking out, I went somewhere f- f- way out there. like It was like ayahuasca. And... Yeah, I can do that with Kundalini in general, with sweat lodges. You know, like Native American Muscogee Creek sweat lodge that I go to regularly with That's, a Where is that? It's out in Wimberley. Okay, so you can just, just
0: invite, show up, and do a sweat lodge, or do you have like a special
1: connection? I, well, I mean, I, he, he's a mentor, so like he's oh, ca- okay. I'm kind of doing like a you, you could I could invite you, mm-hmm. um, but would I it be hard for a, like a random person yeah, on the street? Yeah, I have kind of a like. It's like a 3 year process to do. It's a vision quest. Uh-huh. So it's a very long process of mentorship as with many Native American cultures. Cool. Yeah. So bringing it back to psychedelics like for a lot of people who want to go through the lineages of like an ayahuasca shaman, mm-hmm. it takes a long time and a lot of work and a lot of to become effort. one. To become one. Yeah. If you hear about
0: people like going to Peru and doing this stuff if someone were so inclined to do that how do they find a good person for it do you have any ideas on that yeah that would always be my concern is that you're going to show up in peru and then get like robbed
1: yeah i think a few things one it's a misconception in my judgment that you even need to go to peru Mm. in the first place peru is obviously a poorer country and with tourist money coming there to do ayahuasca it's brought out you know the worst in certain people and i think in america especially we have some kind of weird expectations around what a shaman needs to look like mm. you know if they're if they're brown and they look indigenous and old then
0: hey it's they, probably legit it's it yep. must be legit. <laughs>
1: and that's not true there's a lot of you know people in south america that are you know taking advantage of the trend Mm -hmm. and you know i won't disparage them these are poor people trying to make a living and it's just unfortunate yeah my recommendation is do things only from referrals if you can Uh, yeah and if you can get multiple not just referrals but multiple opinions on a shaman all the better and i've got a lot of relationships with people that i can you know if if anyone wants to reach out i can help them you know find people in the united states in south america mexico serving uh, around you know but there's some really great people that basically travel from city to city serving oh yeah uh, medicine so it's it's pretty pretty out there you just need to be tapped into the right circles and you need to have somebody that you trust who can tell you, yeah, I've worked with these people or yeah, I know people who've worked with them.
0: That's not necessarily where you would recommend someone start though, right? Like, I feel like I hear about that people who have not done any psychedelics going straight to ayahuasca and I haven't done ayahuasca, but I don't know, that idea scares me that somebody with no psychedelic experience is going to go straight to what seems like the biggest thing you would reasonably do. But how do you think about that?
1: Well, it is true that ayahuasca it can be more intense. I mean, the it just interacts with the emotional centers of the brain in a different way. The MT is quite a different molecule than some of the other you know compounds, psilocybin, LSD. But I think facilitation probably has the most to do with it. So if your if your first attempt is a big dose of psilocybin, or the alternative is uh you know whatever the shaman gives you of ayahuasca with a shaman i would say it's probably best to do it with a shaman that makes sense and they know they have an intuition around you are new what you can handle and they usually if you find someone who's you know worthwhile who's studied in a true like lineage yeah they are very intuitive about that they'll make sure to to keep people safe and you know i see where you're going i see where you're coming from But there's very few, like, traditional ceremonial kind of psilocybin experiences. I know that they're out there and Mm -hmm. there's other ways to facilitate psilocybin. But having done all of them multiple times, all of them, ayahuasca is definitely one of the most profound. And Mm -hmm. so if somebody's, like, really called, like, I'm going to spend some money, I'm going to, like, really put some effort into this, then I would go with ayahuasca. And the caveat would be anyone who has a similar mindset that you have, trust that. If you feel like psilocybin feels less intense for you and you want to go that route before ayahuasca, totally trust that. That'd be my advice. Makes sense. You guys were talking about
0: offering a trip at some point,
1: right? Yeah. Through Oyasin. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to through Oyasin, but what I came to realize is that I couldn't offer anything specifically myself or I couldn't add any specific value to the psychedelic experience oh. itself. And so I have a number of partners that I just have relationships with, I've worked with, et cetera, where I just kinda of help people uh, along to, you know, find someone that will work for their schedule, work for their travel budget, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um Yeah, I, mean, I just basically help people find what what they're looking for. I do want to have hunting experiences that include psychedelic experiences, Mm -hmm. whether it's before the hunt, after the hunt. Um, Obviously dosing is very risky during the hunt, so I don't think putting anybody on psychedelics during hunting experiences is necessarily a good idea, but I could totally see how psychedelics Or altered you know states of consciousness before hunting experiences could be really valuable because that's what completely changed my perspective on a lot of things over the last year is kind of having them in a close proximity uh, just inadvertently in my life right so uh, I want to create that for other people as well
0: cool well if people want to
1: get updates on what you're up to and find you online where should they go Sure, they can visit Oyasin.io, which is O Y A S I N dot I O, and that's just the lifestyle brand that I'm working on. And that's probably the best place, is just reach out to me through cool. there and
0: What about you? Are you you're not really on Twitter? I'm not it's on Twitter. I'm on, you know, on anything. Not on Twitter at You've all. you are on
1: Instagram? I'm on Instagram. You can find me at M A N S A L Denton or Honestly, if you want to send me an email, if you're interested in doing like you're interested in being put in touch with someone about these experiences, M-A-N-S-A-L at Wayasin, O-Y-A-S-I-N dot I-O.
0: All right. Well, hopefully we just blow up that email inbox. But uh, yeah, also, thanks for coming on doing this episode. Uh, I liked that we got to do a lot more talking about personal experiences and stuff as it relates to. To the book. I think it's fun. Uh, And obviously, if anybody wants to reach out to me too, my handle is just at N A T E L I S O N on Twitter. But yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in for this episode. We're getting everything back on track. So definitely let me know uh, what you thought of the book and the episode. Uh, And as always, if you're enjoying the show, we appreciate you leaving us a review on iTunes or letting any of your friends know about it. I think we survived this hiatus uh, because of word of mouth. So thank you to everyone who's been sharing the show. Uh, And Monsal, thanks again. And uh, maybe we'll do a future episode on hunting or something as well.
1: Absolutely. Sounds fun. Thanks for having me, buddy. See you all next time.